Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. On March 18th, the Gray Center hosted a special event. It was the first annual Gray Lecture on the Administrative State, an event that we hope to make a, a keynote of our calendar each year. Justice Gorsuch gave the first Gray Lecture in a, in a conversational interview with me, and then we had a panel discussion. And I've been looking forward to this as much as I was looking forward to the conversation with the justice. We hosted we hosted Aditya Bomsai, Aaron Nielsen, and John Harrison to discuss some papers they wrote recently for a workshop the Gray Center hosted in the fall. They were looking at different aspects of agency independence in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's most recent decisions in the Sela and Collins cases and just the broader trajectory of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on agency independence and appointments and removal. John Harrison's paper is already available on the Gray Center's website as a working paper. And so is Aaron Nielsen's paper, which he co-authored with Chris Walker. And they'll be joined uh, eventually by the paper by Aditya Bamzai, co-authored with Sai Prakash. There was a fourth paper at, at the roundtable last fall by Brian Feinstein and Jennifer No, focusing on independent agencies within other agencies. They weren't able to join us for the conference, but their papers was fascinating. And so was a recent paper also on our website by Professor Daniel Crane of Michigan, looking at the FTC's independence in the aftermath of the most recent Supreme Court decisions. All in all, this is a really fascinating and challenging time for those of us who are thinking about agency structure, the powers of agencies, and their independence from the president and Congress. And so I'm so glad that the Gray Center was able to make this contribution to the debates. And I'm looking forward to these papers having an impact in, in academia and beyond. So I hope you read the papers and, and I hope you enjoy this panel discussion. Just before we jump into the panel, just a brief word. When Naomi Rao founded the Gray Center five or six years ago, I mean, we now do a lot of things. We do conferences here in D.C. on Capitol Hill. We do public events. We do private events, podcasts, everything. But when Naomi started this five or six years ago um, with Henry Butler, it really just started with a few roundtables, just recognizing that the administrative state would really benefit from more scholarship, from more diverse viewpoints, really thinking hard all the way from levels of doctrine down to first principles. We started with supporting scholarship and encouraging people to really think hard and, and debate and argue. We've supported scholarship from all sides of these issues throughout our lifetime. Now that we're doing a lot more things, we're very busy and, and we're proud of everything we do, but this this part of it, the roundtables, the research, the scholarly work, remains a central part of what we do. And so years ago, many years ago, when we first started talking about doing an event like this, our goal really was twofold. First, to have a keynote lecture, keynote conversation that would really focus on specific issues that mattered to somebody who's thought hard and, and works hard on these issues. And so we're so grateful and lucky to have Justice Gorsuch. But the second part of the event is equally important and will remain an equally important, important part of the event as we do this year after year. Just the opportunity to take time to focus on some of the best or most important scholarship that the Gray Center has, has, has helped to incubate. We don't do a whole lot. We organize a Zoom call or a roundtable, and we have coffee and, and cookies and so on. But just creating a space for scholars to write about these issues and come and debate them, really really think hard about them for the sake of the scholarship. We're so proud of it and, and so glad that it can be part of this event. And so that's why, we are, why we're here now for this panel. The Gray Center has covered a lot of ground in the last year. 
uh, supporting scholarship on many, many issues. But when the Supreme Court announced that it was going to decide the, or hear and decide the Collins case, we recognized that the time would be right after that case was decided to, uh, to, to support scholarship on it. And so Aditya Bamzai and I reached out to a number of authors, it turns out mostly on the UVA faculty, which simplified things, <laughs> um, to, 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 to write and discuss these papers, some of which were, were are, we presented today and one more by authors who couldn't make it, but we'll describe it later. And I couldn't be happier that we have these authors and these papers, starting with Aaron Nielsen, who, of course, not only writes about these things, but now it turns out argues these cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, so we're going to begin with him. This discussion of, of agency independence will start with Aaron Nielsen, a professor of law at BYU. He writes widely on the administrative process. Uh, he previously clerked for Judges Jerry Smith and Janice Rogers-Brown before clerking for Justice Alito. Uh, in addition to being a, a, an academic, he also continues to be a keen practitioner uh, litigating these issues in real cases. And as I mentioned, he was appointed by the Supreme Court to be an amicus in the case of Collins versus Yellen, which, of course, was one of the cases that gave rise to this discussion. The paper that he wrote, he co-wrote with Chris Walker of Ohio State, who couldn't be here today, it's called Congress's Anti-Removal Power. It's been accepted uh, by a law review to be named later. I won't steal your thunder. Um, but in the meantime, if you want to read the paper, and I hope you do, it's linked on the front page of the Gray Center's website, administrativestate.gmu.edu, and it's also on our working papers page. So, Aaron, why don't you start off the presentation? Sure. All right. Um, so, as Adam was saying, let's go here. Um, a surreal experience um, was when I was asked by the Supreme Court um, to brief and argue um, Collins, uh, which was about the constitutionality of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Um, and, you know, one day we can talk about how this comes about. It was very, very sudden and very, very unexpected. Uh, and we had two months to put together the merits brief. Um, so I called my friend Chris Walker, uh, who was co-pilot on this, and we dived deep into the record and we came up with what we thought were some pretty good arguments, especially after, say, the law. We still came up with some new stuff. We felt pretty good about it. We go to the oral argument. This was during COVID. So I have my argument on the telephone. I'm, I get one Supreme Court argument in my life that I'm arguing on the phone. Um, but all right. OK. Um, and then we wait. The argument's in December and we wait till June um, and we lost everything. Um, every argument we threw out there, all of them lost massive defeat um, for the amicus. Um, but this is what I want to talk about today. As we were going through the original materials, um, we, I think we came up with some, um, some new ideas and new ways to kind of look at some of these questions. Um, so I want to talk about Congress's anti-removal power, which is there's a debate, and we're going to hear from some of the other folks on the panel about whether the president has an inherent removal power or not. Um, you know, that debate has been going on for 200 years. But what is, I think, beyond debate is that Congress has the power to make removal politically costly. And it's not just an incident of other powers, but rather an embedded part of the process um, that Congress has the power to dissuade the president's use of removal. Um, so I want to start with um, Hamilton. Uh, you go back to the Federalist Papers in Hamilton, um, um, 76 and 77. Um, this is about the appointment clause. And Hamilton says one of the um, silent operations of the appointments clause 
um, is that it provides stability in the administration. Uh, and then he goes on to explain in Federalist 77 what he means by that. Um, and he says um, there's the first part, which everyone talks about, which is does it mean that the Senate has a role in uh, removal itself? And that's what people have been talking about. And there's people fight about that. Um, but the broader idea is, you know what? If you're going to put a new person in after somebody is removed, you have to go through the Senate. Um, and Hamilton goes on to say, uh, where a man in any station had given satisfactory evidence of his fitness for it, a new president would be restrained from attempting to change in favor of a person more agreeable to him by the apprehension that a discountenance of the Senate may frustrate the attempt and bring some degree of discredit upon himself. In other words, if you have an appointments process that goes through the Senate, um, there's always a risk that the Senate will say no. And a smart president thinking rationally will look forward and say, well, wait a minute, is it worth getting rid of the person that I have if I don't know I'm going to get the person that I want? Um, you're like, okay, well, maybe Hamilton's a squish. Like, who knows? Um, well, then you go to Madison. Um, this is in the decision of 1789. Uh, Madison, of course, is very much um, in favor of the idea of inherent presidential removal of power. Um, but then he goes on to explain what some checks will be on that power. And he goes straight to impeachment. Um, according to Madison, if you impeach somebody for a bad reason, there is a risk of impeachment there. And he goes on to say that also the person who's removed will have friends in Congress. Uh, they might you know, go against the president or, or campaign against the president for reelection. Um, and then he says to displace a man of high merit and who from a station may be supposed to be a man of extensive influence. Our considerations will, will excite serious reflections beforehand in the mind of any man who may fill the presidential chair. So we looked at that and we said, you know what? I love the Federalist Papers. I love Madison. These people are game theorists. They don't speak in terms of game theory, but they are. There's a game going on here. So we decided to kind of isolate what's the process as they envisioned um, um, the removal process to work out. So here it is. We're going to do a little bit of math here. Very, very, very simple. Um, but imagine a world where the president can fire somebody at will, replace them at will with whoever they want instantaneously and no political blowback. Um, What's going to be the result in terms of policy? So here we have a, a, a hypothetical, you know, less enforcement versus more enforcement. We have an agency's preference. We have the president's preference. In this world, it's going to be exactly at, um, I'm going to use the laser here, it's going to be exactly at the president's preference, right? Because if they don't do exactly what the president wants, the president sends them out on their way, and he puts exactly who he wants in that spot, and there we go. That is not the real world. It has never been the real world. Instead, we have a situation that if the president fires somebody, there's going to be a cost. One cost is it's going to be bad news. Um, it's going to be in the newspaper. The president's going to take a hit on that. He's got to explain what's going on. It's going to take some time. There's also going to be just the reality um, that you have to have call in favors from the Senate to replace the, the, the new person. And the Senate might say no, so you have to discount the value of removing um, by the probability that you're not actually going to get your person that you want. Um, to go in an economics jargon, this creates a zone of indifference. Go back to your, you know, micro, uh, microeconomics and difference curves. Um, but the idea is that at some point the president's going to say, all this being equal, I would do this, but it's good enough. It's good enough for me. I will take what I have because the costs just aren't worth it to replace the person um, that I want. Um, next, the beauty of um, Hamilton and Madison's idea is they can make it more costly for the president to remove somebody and thus expand the, pres the zone of the president's indifference curves or indifference range, and thus create some space where you have additional um, independence. 
right? So if they can extend the range of the president's unhappiness, you know, where he's going to take it, say good enough, uh, by enough, you've essentially taken something where you have, oh, go, go back here, uh, where you have the, um, the agency, hey, you're out here. The president really wants the policy there. Instead, you're there. The president's indifferent in all of those. And you've just created without, even though the president can unilaterally remove this person at will, you have created some agency independence. Um, and that's just built into the appointments clause process, built into the fact that the Senate has a role in this, built into political um, process of, of, of replacement. Um, you're going to have some agency independence, um, even with uh, unilateral president's removal. It's not going to be exactly the same as what you would have um, with a statutory removal restrictions. They're going to have some policies like here or here um, that are outside of the president's indifference range where the president will say, enough, I will not accept that. I will take the costs of firing this person. You're out the door. But so long as the person is operating in this space, um, they're going to have real world independence, even if the president can fire them um, at will. And you say, well, that's great on paper. Does it work in the real world? Yes. Um, So we know that certain positions are removable at will. FBI director, um, very good argument that the chair of the Federal Reserve has no um, protection whatsoever in those roles. Presidents are reluctant to go there in terms of removing these people. And in fact, there's also examples of um, the Senate and Congress deliberately um, increasing removal costs and thus preventing removal. So the comptroller of the currency, we've had the position since the 1860s. Um, when they created this position, there was concern that it was a really powerful regulator, and we don't know if they wanted the president to have it. They believed in presidential removal, however, so they said, well, so what do we do? And the compromise that they reached was, if the president wants to fire the comptroller, the president has to give reasons. And some members of the Senate said, this is about the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Um, it's a Tuesday. That's my reason. Um, surely it's not going to do anything. But some of the other senators, I think, with a little bit more political judgment, said to themselves, you know what? Actually, it will, because the president's going to know if the reason that they give is not a good reason, we are not going to confirm the successor, or at least it'll be a much more painful confirmation process for the successor. Um, and the reality is, again, it's hard to say exactly causal. Um, no president, as far as we can tell, has ever removed a comptroller of the currency, even though all the president has to do to remove them is just say it's a Tuesday. Um, the mere fact that they have to give reasons is a signal from the Senate um, that you should be very careful if you're going to remove this position. So once you recognize this dynamic, um, there's a toolkit. I wish this was bigger. Um, but generally, we have soft tools, hard tools, and anti-evasion tools. Um, soft tools. If the Senate wants to prevent um, you know, too much removal, they can say um, there's a reason-giving requirement. So give a reason. Or they can say um, we have a hearing if you fire this person, we guarantee you, we're telling you right now in advance, we're going to go right into the rules, um, that there's going to be a hearing about why, why, you had, why you removed this person. Thus, we've made it more politically costly for you to remove. There's also harder tools. Right now, we're talking about, you know, what do we do with the filibuster? If you really, really want to create some measure of agency independence, you say the cloture requirements for replacing somebody um, is 60 votes, and we're putting it in the rules. Right. You can get rid of that through the nuclear option if they want to do that. But we know that these things tend to be pretty sticky. And now you're the president. You say, I have to have a 60 vote threshold to get my person in. Well, you know what? That's going to change your decision whether you fire at the outset. Um, also, of course, there's the Madison's on impeachment that would also have some sort of deterrent effect. Um, and we also have the anti-evasion tools. If you're a president, you're like, well, wait a minute. 
I don't want to go through this confirmation process. So what am I going to do? I'm going to use a recess appointment. Well, of course, Congress can prevent that as well. Uh, or I'm going to have an acting official. Congress can reform the Federal Vacancies Act. Uh, I'm going to have a delegation of authority within the agency. Congress can restrict those types of subdelegations as well. And here is, I think, the fun part of this project is all of these tools uh, at the same time that Congress has been, uh, the Supreme Court has been, re- you know, enhancing presidential removal, they've also been enhancing these other types of anti-removal tools. So a reason-giving requirement, and both Collins and Selah Law, the Supreme Court, I, as I read it, seems to endorse this as not the same as a regular removal restriction. Um, they also say you can just call the agency independent, and that's a signal. Collins says that's okay. You're allowed to do that. Um, you know, there's a little bit higher level of abstraction, but the Supreme Court in their, in Rucho about, um, the political question doctrine that about gerrymandering, it's hard for me to see the same court that says gerrymandering is a political question going to say, but you can't have hearings if the president fires somebody. Uh, that's not going to happen. That's, I, that is not within the realm. So the stronger the political question doctrine becomes, um, the stronger Congress's anti-removal power comes. Um, likewise, we have on the anti-evasion stuff, um, Noel Canning, that's where the court uh, restricts the president's ability to use removal, uh, to use uh, recess appointments. And who's the folks who's even more extreme on that position? It's, of course, Scalia, uh, Justice Scalia and the conservatives. So in a sense, are making it even more agency independence uh, by making it harder for the president just to replace somebody at will. Likewise, with the Vacancies Act stuff, again, Justice Thomas goes even further than the court in Southwest General and says you can't do this at all uh, for principal officers which, of course, again, creates a greater measure of independence. And likewise, you can look at, say, Arthrex about these subdelegations. Um, so that's, I think, where we are. The, the, to, to finish this up, um, we can debate the normative, uh, the question about whether there's removal. We also debate normative attractiveness of what I'm talking about here. But the reality is, and it's built into the system, um, that Congress has some ability to create some measure of independence. Um, so, you know, in some ways, the president is the controller in chief in the real world. On the other hand, um, there's a talk, you know, if you get rid of Humphrey's executor, well, what does that mean for the Federal Reserve? Nothing, arguably nothing. Um, that argument doesn't actually necessarily hold sway because if Congress really, really wants to protect the Federal Reserve, they have a whole suite of things they can do that have nothing to do with removal restrictions. Um, so the argument about, oh, no, Humphrey's executor, if that falls, then what do we do about the Fed? I, I think that that's missing the point. Um, and then finally, the last one is there's a debate about whether independence is even a real thing or we should even care about it. Well, this is a way for Congress to put, you know, put it, put, to back it, to, uh, put the money where its mouth is. If we think that independence really matters, well, there you go. Here are the tools that you use. These tools are not costless from Congress's perspective. So if Congress decides these tools are just not worth it, well, that itself is a signal about the value of independence itself. And that's the paper. All right, thank you. So our next speaker will be Aditya Bamzai. He's a professor of law at the University of Virginia. Uh, His scholarship focuses on administrative law, the Constitution, and national security. Uh, He clerked for Judge Sutton and Justice Scalia. He served in government in both the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board and the Office of Legal Counsel. His paper, I think the working title of it is the Executive Power of Removal, and it's co-authored by one of his UVA colleagues who's here with us today, Professor Sai Prakash. So, Aditya, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks so much, Adam. And uh, 
Thank you to the audience for being here today to hear us speak about Article 2 on a uh, beautiful Friday afternoon. I think by, uh, March by, Madness. by being here, you've all revealed yourselves to be true law nerds, which uh, in my books is a good thing. Um, my remarks, as, as Adam just noted, will be based on an article that I've co-authored with uh, one of my colleagues, Sai Prakash. Uh, and I also just wanted to note that several of our brilliant research assistants are in the audience today as well. So it's great that you all were able to be here. Um, the question whether the president has power to remove other executive officers is one of the most foundational and famous in American law. Uh, and it's been at the heart of constitutional debates literally since the very beginning of American government. Uh, in fact, in the very first debate in Congress over the Constitution in 1789, over the establishment of the first departments, foreign affairs, later state, uh, war, later defense, and treasury, still treasury, um, members of Congress discussed this exact question. Who could remove the heads of these departments and who thereby could most directly control them? Since 1789, the issue has been the subject of rigorous historical analysis by a veritable who's who of American lawyers, uh, from James Madison to Daniel Webster and Henry Clay to William Howard Taft and Louis Brandeis. And since 1789, the question of the president's removal power has been central to some of the most important political issues of the day, from Andrew Jackson's removal of the Treasury Secretary, William Duane, in his war with the Bank of the United States, to Congress's impeachment and removal of Andrew Johnson during Reconstruction for his removal of the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. Uh, and I'll, I'll just note parenthetically that uh, one of um, Johnson's uh, lawyers during that proceeding was Benjamin Curtis, who Justice Gorsuch referred to uh, just a few moments ago. In recent years, the Supreme Court has, as my uh, friend Aaron has already mentioned, decided several cases, uh, Free Enterprise Fund, CELA Law, Collins versus Yellen, addressing the question whether Article II's vesting of the executive power confers authority on the president to remove executive officers at pleasure. At the same time, scholars have added to the studies of the removal power that I previously mentioned by criticizing the court's historical analysis. Our paper is a defense of the traditional view that the president has a removal power under Article II of the Constitution and that while Congress can regulate that power in some ways, it cannot depart from the at-pleasure constitutional baseline. So with a, with a topic like the removal power, given the truly vast quantities of ink that has been spilt on the subject, it would be impossible to do justice to the subject in anything short of a book-level treatment. Uh, and that's why I'm grateful that Adam has allotted me the next two hours to address this <laughs> issue. <laughs> so, okay, just kidding. My goal today is not to cover every nook and cranny of the subject, but rather to sketch out in broad strokes the shape of our argument in the paper, while also touching on a few advances we believe that we have made over prior accounts. First, um, did the conferral of the executive power in Article II's vesting clause confer substantive authority on the president? Or did it, as some argue, merely designate the president as the individual who would be the titular head of the executive branch? So we believe there's ample evidence that the authors of the Constitution thought that it conferred substantive authority. Uh, take, for example, the remarks of James Madison during the Constitutional Convention. At one point, Madison declared that, and here's a quote, certain powers were in their nature executive and must be given to that department, whether administered by one or more persons. Madison, in this quote, thus presupposes a bundle of, quote, powers that were encompassed by the term executive and acknowledged 
that such powers could be exercised by one or, or more people, um, depending on whether the constitutional framework created a unitary or a plural executive at its apex. Madison then proposes an amendment um, so uh, that um, the Constitution would authorize a, quote, a national executive be instituted with powers to carry into effect the national laws to appoint offices in cases not otherwise provided for uh, and to execute such other powers. Immediately thereafter, Madison remarks that he, quote, did not know that explicitly mentioning the power of appointment was absolutely necessary because it was perhaps included in the first member of the proposition which is the one that institutes the national executive. Uh, and so these remarks this understand that certain powers are in their nature executive, uh, such that the creation of a national executive by implication confers certain executive powers on that institution. All right, so that's whether the executive power has the substantive component. Um, what is the substantive component if, in fact, the executive power uh, has uh, uh, that, that sort of interpretation? Uh, we argue in the paper that it includes managing office holding through appointment and removal. And we um, point out that the, um, the British crown, um, which was in the minds of uh, the folks who wrote the con uh, Constitution, was the fountain of offices. Uh, and had long been understood to have the authority to set the tenure of officials, choosing among different options, including at pleasure or for the officer's life or to an individual and heirs. To be sure, um, by the 18th century, Parliament had achieved some measure of supremacy, and that meant that the legislature could assert authority to regulate offices to fix tenure. And yet, despite this form of legislative supremacy, the earlier British tradition had created this practice as well as a uh, shared vocabulary that deemed certain powers to be executive. Uh, that's the shared vocabulary that was inherited by American lawyers who used it to define the executive power. And they didn't mean, and this is crucial, they didn't mean that whatever powers the British crown had or lacked at the time of the Constitution's adoption were immediately transplanted into the presidency. Uh, no, uh, the president was not the British king and had fewer authorities in various ways, but Congress also wasn't parliament and didn't possess under the Constitution the same sort of supremacy that parliament had. Uh, instead of the simple one-to-one -one transmittal of the crown's powers circa 1789, to the president, the framers of the Constitution had a more abstract notion of executive power in mind that was based in part on these British practices, but more directly on what might be described as the political philosophy-based uh, vision that um, they had at that time period. Uh, so when the framers spoke of the executive power, they referred to a cluster of powers that had come to be associated with the executive generally through their association with the British crown and other executives, both uh, monarchical as well as uh, Republican. Um, third, um, we argue in the paper that removal was, in fact, an executive power. Evidence for that um, include, uh, can be found in the uh, debates over the Constitution. For example, and this is just one among many, Luther Martin, who is an attendee at the Constitutional Convention and leaves midstream and becomes a vocal anti-federalist and later argues uh, McCulloch versus Maryland, um, gave a speech to the Maryland House of Delegates containing his criticisms of the Constitution. And he speaks to the military and he says that its uh, officers are all to be appointed by the president and dependent on his will and pleasure. He speaks also in a letter to the citizens of Maryland and he criticizes the possibility that federal judges with good behavior tenure under Article 3 
will nevertheless be capable of holding other offices at the will and pleasure of the government. Uh, so Martin, Martin's criticisms here, they, they presuppose that other non-judicial offices were in fact held at the will and pleasure of the government. Further evidence can be found in a famous debate that occurs in the summer of 1789 uh, in Congress over the creation of the first departments of the government. Uh, and to make a long, very long story short, uh, in late June, the House approved language that provided that the new Secretary of Foreign Affairs was to be removable by the president. Well, that same day then, Representative Egbert Benson observes that the language might be misread as granting removal authority when, in fact, the Constitution granted the power uh, to remove to the president already. Uh, so Benson proposes a couple of amendments meant to signify that a congressional endorsement of the view that the Constitution itself granted that removal authority. The House agreed, uh, pursuant to uh, Benson's amendments after a long debate, to delete the to be removable by the president language and added language that presupposes the president's removal authority. After the Foreign Affairs Bill had taken its final form, another representative, Thomas Sedgwick, said with no contradiction by anyone who voted for the bill that a House majority had approved the constitutional theory that all executive officers served at the pleasure of the president. Uh, so there's a lot more to say here, um, but I've already said enough. And I hope that what I've left you with is a sense of um, where the debate over the president's removal power has been uh, in the recent past. And this is sort of like the affirmative case that um, the court has been embracing in its recent uh, removal opinions, um, as well as perhaps a sense of how history might bear on our understanding of Article II's vesting clause, because it's this latter point that might shape our understanding of where the court will take the president's removal power and the Constitution generally in the future. Thank you very much. As I mentioned, he, he co-authored the paper with Professor Sai Prakash, and, and hopefully we'll he'll get a chance to weigh in as the conversation goes. I noticed in taking notes ahead of this that, that Professor Prakash is the James Monroe Professor of Law at UVA. Is that is that right, James Monroe? Our next speaker is the James Madison Professor of Law at UVA. I, I hope you two argue about this, about the relative merits of Madison and Monroe. Um, but our third speaker is John Harrison, the, John, the James Madison Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. He specializes in constitutional law and history. Uh, before joining UVA, he clerked for Judge Robert Bork. He served in the Justice Department in many capacities, including Deputy Assistant Attorney General and the Office of Legal Counsel. And his paper, taking a somewhat different view of the situation uh, than his UVA colleagues, is titled The Unitary Executive Without Inherent presidential removal power. And, and this paper, too, is available in draft form on the Gray Center's website. So, John? Thank you, Adam. The, the reason Cy is the Monroe professor and I am the Madison professor is that Monroe was a lot taller than Madison. And Cy <laughs> is a lot taller than I am. So we follow tradition at Virginia. I could just give you the title of the paper and then say, now we can get to the snacks sooner. Because the unitary executive without inherent removal power is about 75 or 80% of the idea. The paper endorses the unitary executive principle, seeks to derive it from the text structure and history of the Constitution. By the unitary executive principle, I mean that the vesting of the executive power in the president, me and mention of nobody else, means that even though everybody at the time of the framing knew that there would be more than one person in the executive branch, vesting in a single individual means that that single individual is in charge. 
that that person is in command, and in particular that that person is supposed to be able to oversee and control significant policy decisions that are made in the process of executing the law. There are long arguments about whether the unitary executive principle is true or not. The paper has my version of that. I just, I just summarized it very briefly. Another thing about the debates at the federal convention, one thing about the discussions of the federal convention throughout the many back and forths about the executive power, about the, about the presidency, the assumption was very widely shared that this one person whose selection process was so important for the federal convention was so important because that person was going to be the boss of the executive branch. As my former colleague at OLC, now law professor John McGinnis, used to say about the puzzle, who is the Justice Department's client? John McGinnis's answer was, the United States is the client and the president is the boss. And again, the principle of the unitary executive is the president is the boss. But the next part is the unitary executive principle, yes, the president is the boss, without inherent presidential removal power, without a constitutionally granted power in the president to remove executive subordinates. There are two primary arguments in favor of inherent constitutional executive power. You just heard one of them, a lot about one of them from Aditya, which is that the executive power itself brings with it removal power, and that a lot of people thought that first about the king, then about the, then about the president. I think that that is partially true, but only partially true, and the partially is an important point and explains a lot of how people, what was discussed, especially at the time of the framing, needs to be understood. Removal, like running a post office, is executive in that it is a specific decision and therefore is to be made pursuant to law and therefore is made by executive officials and therefore not by somebody else. So yes, executive in that sense, but not inherent in the sense that not, not inherent in the standard sense of, of in which inherent is used now because the power is granted by law, like lots of other executive powers, and so can be regulated by law. And it's important to remember that the debates of 1789 about removal power were fundamentally about whether the Senate had to be or could be involved in removal power. And in that context, when people said, no, 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 the removal power is executive, and so it's in the president, much of what they were saying is, and therefore the Senate can't be, can't be involved at all. It's always important to think about the context in which any statement is made. The other primary argument in favor of inherent presidential removal power is functional. The, and the functional aspect of that argument is crucial to what I say in this paper. The functional argument is, in order for the president to be in charge, to be the boss, which, as I say, I think the, president, the Constitution makes the president the boss, the president has to be able to remove people and threaten the removal of, of lower-level people. I think the functional argument fails. First, because the removal power is not enough to make sure that the president is the boss. There will always be people in the executive branch whose answer is, go ahead, make my day. I will demonstrate to the world what a principled person I am by being, by being removed. There will also be others who have a strong political constituency. Why is the Secretary of Agriculture under the Democratic administration the same as the Secretary of Agriculture under the previous Democratic administration? Maybe that person is tight with the farmers. There will always be, be appointees who have strong political support and functionally cannot be removed. So it is not the case 
that removal is adequate for presidential control. And it is also not the case that any of the tools of control, of which there are several, is fully adequate for presidential control. Because the next big claim of the paper is there are multiple tools of presidential control, like the way it works in the armed forces, which is subordinates have an obligation to do what they are told, and if they don't, they are disciplined. Ask the people in the armed forces, and they will tell you that, yes, that threat is highly effective, but it's not 100% effective. Some people don't, sometimes people don't follow their orders. So the situation is the Constitution poses, posits a, a goal, a constraint, something that must be true. The president must be in charge. But there is no one way that the president can, can be put in charge. There's, none of them is constitutionally implied because none of them is absolutely perfect. And all of them have, all of them have flaws. Furthermore, all of them can be abused. The, the, the debates in 1789 were very much about the possibility that the removal power would be used either to get people to do things that are illegal or for patronage purposes so that the president could surround himself by, with, as they said, creatures um, who would applaud wildly at, at all of the president's bad ideas. Yes, removal power can be used for that. The power to give orders can be used for bad purposes. All of those things are true. So what we have is a constitutional imperative that somehow the president be in charge a number of possible tools, no one of which is fully adequate for the president to be in charge, but all of which can be abused one way or another, and then, most importantly for understanding the Constitution, the necessary and proper power in Congress, which authorizes Congress to make crucial choices about how to structure the government, including the executive branch. So my view is the Constitution gives Congress the power to structure the executive branch so as to deal with potential abuses for example, by saying an apolitical civil service and not everybody can be removed by the president. Congress can say that, provided it says, and the people in the civil service must do what they are told. That is, Congress can structure the system in which some combination of measures gives the president adequate control. And again, think of the armed forces. Removal and the threat of, the, of removal are not, the, are not the only means of control. Two more, two more points, and one will finally bring us to Collins and Arthrex. The almost last point is to say that this possibility, that Congress has flexibility and can set things up so that the president is in charge without necessarily having removal power, I think provides a solution to a longstanding problem that Justice, Chief Justice Taft talked about in Myers, which is what about adjudicatory officials? Is it really true that the president has to be able to freely fire adjudicatory officials isn't it a good idea to make them independent so that they will just follow the law? I think the answer is what Congress can do and probably should do is more broadly in the executive branch do what they do in some of the, in some of the so-called independent agencies. Of course, I think independent agencies are unconstitutional in principle because I believe in the unitary executive principle, which is to say, allow the head of the agency, the agency itself or a, a collegial body, to lay down policy that then agency adjudicators have to follow, that ALJs must implement. ALJs have protected tenure, not life tenure, but they have protected tenure. They're supposed to be impartial, but they must carry out the policy that is given to them. It seems to me that Congress can set that up for the president and agency adjudication, authorize the president to control the policy decisions, and then authorize the adjudicators impartially to find the facts and apply the law and the president's policy to the law. The last thing I'll say, again, against about Collins and Arthrex, is one reading of Collins, which is, is, is probably Aaron's fault. He made them do this. 
Uh, one reading, one reading of Collins is the president's tool of removal, a president's tool of control has to be removal, and the other tools uh, that Amicus that Amicus Nielsen talks about are inadequate. On one hand, Collins might seem to be contrary to what I to what I've said. On the other hand, Arthrex, although it was talking about the appointments clause, took a very unitary executive approach to the appointments clause, found that the existing statutory scheme was unconstitutional. And then by way of conducting its severability or fallback analysis, didn't agree with the federal circuit, which had said the fallback system is one in which these administrative patent judges can be removed by the director, but rather, said the Supreme Court, no, that's not right. The fallback system is one in which their decisions can be reversed by the director. That is to say, substantive control over the decision as opposed to removal power, was adequate to provide sufficient supervision as required by the Appointments Clause after the court had told us how much the Appointments Clause fits into the general system of presidential control over the executive. So I'm, go- I'm going to say that the glass is half full um, and, point to, and point to Arthrex and say that at least in one case, the justices have begun to see that, yes, there are powerful tools of control other than removal, including, for example, the ability to review a decision, or I would say to lay down policy that must, be, that must be followed. And as long as the person who is the boss has one of those powerful tools, that's enough. Thanks, John. <laughs> as I said, now the glass is half empty again. <laughs> so there will be time for audience questions. We'll, we'll have microphones. Let me throw a couple of questions out first. And I, and I can't help um, but, but just... Note that given the, the clear disagreement between Professor Harrison's approach and, and the approach of his colleagues, Professors Bamzai and, and Prakash, maybe we could start with just some great uh, cavalier <laughs> against cavalier violence, and you two can, can duke this out a little bit, forget everything we said before about civility. Um, but I'm just curious if, if either of you have any sort of initial reactions to each other's points. And Aditya, I know in your, your paper, we didn't get a chance to get to it in the presentation, but in your paper, you do sort of highlight, identify some of the main arguments against your case and, and your responses to that. So maybe that's a good place to start. Why don't you just flag some of the arguments that you're already grappling with, and then John can pile on with anything else he'd like to, and, and you can respond to John. Sounds great, yeah. Um, so let me actually uh, just start with uh, uh, a couple of thoughts about how uh, John's paper and, and our own intersect. Uh, and, and, you know, these might be uh, points of difference or ways where we're interpreting the historical materials differently. And then maybe uh, as to the counterarguments, as you, as you suggested, Adam, I'll, I'll bracket that and we'll return to it if we have time. Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, both, both John and I referred to this uh, famous debate uh, in 1789 that, that uh, as I mentioned, is the first constitutional debate that occurs in Congress over the creation of the departments. And uh, the question that arises is who has uh, control through removal over these uh, department heads. And uh, I think that, um, uh, you know, in fairness, if we just like limit our, uh, our pool of historical materials to, to that debate, uh, there are ways in which uh, the, the materials can be uh, uh, interpreted differently. Uh, and I think that what we are providing is um, what, what I believe to be, uh, you know, just by my lights, the best interpretation. But um, I think that one could could look at the materials and say, oh, look, um, what we today describe as agency independent statutory provisions, and those are, for example, 
good cause provisions, uh, provisions saying that for the, the president can only remove an agency head for inefficiency, neglect of duty, malfeasance in office, or good cause, or uh, terms of, of that nature. Those types of provisions are not actually being debated at that moment in 1789 in Congress. Instead, the type of alternative uh, provision that is being debated is a provision that would give the Senate a role in removal as well. So if you were to read the debate as referring only to the proposals that were on offer, namely, should the Senate also be involved in removal, then uh, that, there's, there's a way in which you could say, well, that's all they were addressing. And because of that, uh, that's all the debate uh, speaks to. Alternatively, and I think this is uh, you know, closer to our reading, you could say, well, they were, in fact, speaking of that type of proposal. But what was the reasoning? What was the rationale that they had uh, about Article 2? And, uh, and what were the principles that they, they, they were speaking about? Uh, and, and the fact that we have now this new phenomenon, a new way of, uh, of achieving uh, a comparable um, result uh, through good cause provisions that they, they, at the time in 1789, were perhaps re- achieving through the Senate uh, uh, advice and consent provisions, um, the fact that we have a new type of statute uh, doesn't mean that it doesn't fall within the broader principle that was being announced in 1789. So if I look at like the way in which the material is being used slightly differently, at least that's one way that, that comes to mind. And I wonder if, you know, John has uh, sort of a different reaction to, to uh, how, how perhaps we're uh, approaching that material differently. Well, first, first let, me, let me say, in the interests of Virginia collegiality, that we, since, since we, we, do, we do agree on the principle of the unitary executive, that is to say, one way or another, the president's supposed to be, supposed to be in command. And one thing I, I, I want to add about the debates in 1789, whatever they mean about removal, agency independence as we understand it today was not an issue. The question was, who is going to be making sure that the officers follow the law? No one suggested that policy independence in today's sense, like what the, you know, the Federal Reserve setting monetary policy without being told what monetary policy should be by the, by, by the president, that's not what those debates were about. And so the fact that there were some people who didn't think the president had re- removal power, we thought it could be or had to be given to the Senate, that's just, a, that's just another form of political control over what we would now call agencies. That's not, that's not agency independence. So the first point about 17, 1789 is to, is to understand that even the anti-presidentialists were not pro-independence as that concept is understood today. The other, the other point, um, responding more directly to what, to what Aditya just said, another important point about the context in 1789. First, big point, the question was, what about Senate involvement? The other, the other big point is that no one was discussing possible tools of presidential control other than removal. So the broader point that, that, that I think is really important, which is to say there are other ways in which the president can be made the boss, was not on the, was not on the table. So as far as anybody was thinking about it, and remember context, statements are always made in the context of what people have on their minds and not the issues they haven't thought about yet. The issue they were thinking about was removal or nothing, or removal or controlled by the, controlled by the Senate. And if the only tool is removal, then Senate involvement in removal is a major inhibition on the president's power to control. That is, that is true. But again, in a debate where they weren't saying, well, how about we say they have to pro- follow the president's orders, and if they don't, they go to jail. No one was, no one was talking about that. 
So again, the, the, the context is where removal is the only tool on the table. Aaron, do you have anything on this so far, or else I'll ask you a question about your paper? Um, I mean, I love, I love hearing the debate. Um, and I think about how that relates to the Appointments Clause and what they thought the Appointments Clause was for. Um, and it, it, I think, again, maybe Hamilton didn't know what he was talking about, but he surely foresaw that it would have some sort of dynamic effect on presidential behavior. Um, so it is, it is true, I think, that they thought, you know, the president would be the boss. But what do we mean by that? I think we still have the same sorts of questions we have today. Like, there, often a boss has underlings who aren't exactly where the boss is. Um, but nonetheless, th we, that's, that's kind of just kind of built into how, how it works. So I think that, I, I, again, I, I think I'm probably agreeing with John uh, more, than, more than not. You can still have the president being the boss, but... How much, very, how much difference of opinion was it allowed? Was it understood that they would have when they, when they ratified this thing? Um, where you're still the boss, but that doesn't mean that everything, that you're 100% agree on everything. Um, and surely they had enough practical judgment or knew that the system would be such that there would be some divergence. Um, so how does that work? Can I, can I add to that question, by the way? Because we're familiar with Federalist 70 and, and Hamilton's view of the energetic executive. And we've talked some about Federalist 76 in, in Aaron's paper about the Senate's advice and consent role. But in Federalist 76 is one of my favorite lines from Hamilton, where he says the importance of Senate confirmation is to ensure that the, 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 the officers are, who, who the president appoints are not just the obsequious instruments of the president's pleasure. Right? Hamilton, who's the staunchest advocate for an energetic executive, saw that you didn't need this sort of constructive feedback within the executive branch. And that's not to say that, that the, the, the appointed officers are the real bosses, but that there'd be value in having this, I don't know what you'd call it, constructive friction or something, some, some honest, you know, productive feedback. And so just to reiterate Aaron's question, how do you see, both of you, Aditya and John, this, this relationship between the president who's been elected and has the executive power and his officers and others who have been appointed and who are there to basically follow him as the boss, but have a kind of constitutional responsibility of their own to, 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 to be more than just, again, obsequious instruments of, of the president's pleasure. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so maybe I'll, I'll take uh, Aaron's point first and then, and then move on uh, to yours, um, Adam. Um, so, so with respect to uh, Aaron's um, uh, citation of, of the, the Hamilton quote, it's in, I believe it's in Federal 77. Right. Um, so, first in 76, and then he, he built it out in 77. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. The, the point um, that is being made um, in, in those parts of the Federalist is who, who has uh, pursuant to the Constitution the authority to remove? And one plausible interpretation of the Constitution, which, uh, again, is, is not the position that we embrace, but one plausible interpretation that Hamilton is, in fact, embracing in Federal 77 is that because the president appoints with the advice and consent of the Senate, the removal has to follow the appointment and the president must remove with the advice and consent of the Senate. Um, and the argument that, that, uh, that uh, folks made on the other side uh, for, for the president's authority to remove is that, in fact, the president appoints ultimately, and it is simply with the advice and consent of the Senate such that the Senate is not uh, playing a role in the appointment itself, ultimately. Um, 
So, so that, that's, a, that's a parsing of the appointments clause. It is interesting, and we point this out in the paper, that there is another uh, Federalist uh, paper, uh, number 66, um, that that's somewhat escaped notice in this uh, particular debate about removal, where, where Hamilton says um, in describing the officers of the government um, and uh, that uh, all, all governments um, with which he says we are acquainted, um, he, he says that uh, those uh, who hold offices during pleasure are dependent on the pleasure of those who appoint them. Uh, and what I'm driving at is that in that particular Federalist paper, he seems to be uh, discussing the standard that officers will hold their office under, which is during pleasure. And then you might ask, during the pleasure of whom? And in Federalist 77, he says, during the pleasure of the Senate and the president, mm-hmm. taken together. And later on in Hamilton's life, he ultimately rejected the position that he expresses in Federalist 77. And he says, no, in fact, I was wrong about that. Um, uh, about uh, the president of the Senate being the, the removing party together. But what's interesting is that you can actually conceive of this as what's the standard? That's one question. And then who, in fact, is removing? That's another question. And I think, uh, you know, the, Hamilton actually flips on the, on the second question. But with respect to the, the first question during pleasure, I, I think there's some consistency uh, and the, the other aspects of the Federalist remain constant. Uh, as for your question, Adam, I'll just briefly say, that, in fact, this, this point about uh, how much political control through the president there ought to be of the bureaucracy uh, versus how much uh, expert experience ought to accumulate in the bureaucracy is, is one that runs across all kinds of governments, uh, foreign governments. It's the type of balance that, um, that uh, all governments have, have had to think to themselves, like how to strike. Uh, and that is, in fact, what we're talking about today. So, you know, I, I think that that's what's at stake. I guess we'll have more roundtables. John? <laughs> I, th- I think, uh, and I'm, I'm going to try to respond to both at once because the two are, the two are closely related. But first, I, certainly, Aaron, the, yes, the, the people at the Federal Convention, they hadn't seen a vast bureaucracy like we have, but they knew bureaucracies and they knew large governments and they understood that the, that the need for anyone, even the king, to operate through other people was to some extent a constraint on the person who was the boss. Yes, they, under, yes, they, they, under, they understood that. I think one thing that comes out of the Federal Convention, and especially then in the debates of 1789, is the kind of check that the other people in the executive branch would, would, put, on the, would put on whoever was the boss, was the, turned out to be the president, um, was primarily twofold. It was, one, not to create a personal following for that, that single individual who would basically become what we would see later in the 19th century as a political machine and not to do things that were illegal. During, during the debates in 1789, everybody was concerned that if the president can freely remove these, A, these people will be toadies um, and, and lackeys and creatures and so forth, and will just be the president's personal following, and he'll get them to do illegal things. So the, I think the, pri- the primary function of having those other people in the executive branch was to make sure that the executive branch was not just you know, like the, the president's feudal followers, but was rather was people who were independent in that their job was to carry out the law pursuant, pursuant to the president's oversight and direction, but fundamentally their job was to, car- was to carry out the law. And that's what a lot of people in 1789 were concerned a free removal power would undermine. Not, again, not policy in independence, but their willingness to do what the law requires as opposed to what the, what the president required. 
And you know, one thing I think everybody who, who believes in the unitary executive today also believes is, yes, the executive branch is largely subject to the rule of law. And tools that are designed to make sure that it is subject to the rule of law are available to Congress. Uh, Aaron, maybe just a question for you, and, and I'd love to hear the others' thoughts on this as well. Uh, if your paper had a subtitle, it would probably be How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love uh, the End of, of Humphrey's Executor. Um, and I, I mean, all, all the sort of hard and soft tools that you sketch out in the paper are, are interesting, and I'll be interested to see how people react in, in writing and, and, and discuss what you put out there. Point about the, the notice requirement or the reason-giving requirement. What's wrong with just requiring the president to give an explanation for why he fires the comptroller or why he fires somebody else? That seems pretty minimal. And, uh, of course, reason-giving is the sort of the core of the APA for agencies. But I just wonder how well that fits with the real role of the president. I mean, the president was designed, again, if we're going to keep quoting Hamilton, to be energetic, to sometimes decide things in secret. Right. And, and I think it's fair to say to oftentimes operate through prudential judgments and, and, and the exercise of statesmanship, that doesn't always lend itself easily to reason-giving. And so I, I worry a little bit that your reason-giving requirement actually asks the president to be something a little different than the classic notion of the president. It's just acting swiftly and sometimes even silently. So I guess maybe you could explain to me why I should stop worrying and, and again, love the bomb. Well, sure. So I, I should have mentioned, I, I hope I did, this paper is co-authored um, with Chris Walker. Um, and I don't know if Chris would, would so readily agree with that, with that subtitle that you just threw out there. Yeah, um, uh, maybe, uh, yeah sure. Um, so, but the, but the, the, I mean, the question here is, this is a political process, I think, as if you read the, kind of the structure of what's going on in the Constitution here. And the president doesn't have to give any reason at all other than, I mean, the statute says give a reason because I felt like it. Um, that would be sufficient, I think, for purposes of the statute, uh, or it was Tuesday. But the problem is, if you have a system where you have an appointments clause, um, the Senate might say, well, actually, we don't think that's a good enough reason. Uh, and we, in the paper, we give an example, uh, which was a removal of an inspector general, uh, which are often also subject to one of these reason-giving requirements. Um, and they don't happen very often. There's not a lot of removals of inspectors general. Um, and there was one where there was a removal. And the, the Senate didn't buy it. They're like, well, give us more explanation. And the president at first said, I don't, I don't really want to. They said, well, you know, they kept pounding. And then eventually you got more and more lengthy memos and discussions. I'm sure back channel discussions as well. So the answer is, like, I don't think it's not, I'm not saying that there's APA would be subject to that. I think there would be big problems with that. Um, I'm saying that this is a signal from the Congress to say, if you do this, just know you know that you're, you're playing with fire because you might respond to their own powers back at you. It's almost a communication. It's just a formalized uh, message between the branches. Okay. I don't know, Aditya or John, if you have any thoughts on that. Um, I, I mean, I think I agree by and large with uh, Aaron. I remember when that removal of the inspector general occurred during the uh, Obama administration, wasn't it? And uh, yeah. uh, it was interesting that the, initially the president said basically nothing, right? And uh, yeah. Uh, and I, eventually I think, got more and more. Uh, I, I think I agree with, uh, with Aaron um, on uh, what he had to say about that. I'm going to say that I, 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 think, I think this problem is the, 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 that some presidential judgments are very much judgments can't be set, can't be set, can't be explained well necessarily, can't be um, put, in, put into a, a sort of given a good systematic account. And sometimes it may just be not Tuesday. It's just I can't get along with that person. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I think that a sort of a one weakness of my position is that sometimes, and Chief Justice Taft talks about this in, in Myers, sometimes you might think the president needs just to have personal confidence in somebody. And in, especially the very high people at government, this was discussed in, in the, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Maybe the people at the highest levels of government are such that the president just has to think, this is somebody I can trust. And maybe I don't know why I can't, why I can't trust this person, but I have to be able to, I have to be able to trust this person. My, my view of congressional power does not readily accommodate that. And as I say, I think that is, I think that is a weakness of it. But I think it's also true that in a lot of places, the Constitution places confidence, we're talking about the president having confidence in somebody, Constitution places confidence in Congress. And to understand that, yes, there are some, even if we could do something like this, not a reading giving requirement and so forth, there are some, some offices where it is just crucial, and again, Secretary of State may be a good example, crucial for the president to think, I want to go to, go to bed at night and not worry about what the Secretary of State is going gonna, is gonna to do if, if she gets a call at four o'clock in the morning. Um, and no, it's nobody, no, it's somebody um, who, who, in whom I can have confidence. I, I will say I've been, I've been, I've been reading Bill Barr's memoir, um, and, and he has a characteristically off-color image for this that I am not going to repeat. Um, but the point is, yes, there are situations in which the principal may need to have personal confidence um, in the subordinate. And real fast, if I could just one thing on that. With the Congress's anti-removal power approach to um, independence, I think that the president's indifference zone for, say, the Secretary of State is nothing. Um, there's almost no political check that the Senate could say, uh, put on the president, would make the president say, I'm going to keep somebody I don't want in the Secretary of State. Um, because the benefits of having somebody you trust in that position are so great. Um, we're talking more of the margins. Um, the further away you get from the core of what the president does, the greater the president's indifference zone becomes. Uh, just one, my last question of the day, and then I'll give folks a chance to jump in. But, but John, the, the thrust of your paper, as I take it, is that ultimately, uh, the president need, is, not, is not entitled to unfettered control of the executive branch. Congress can impose limits, but he needs to have what you call adequate control. And I just, we just had a judge here talking about how he decides cases. How, would, how should a judge enforce a standard like adequate control? If there's an agency that has maybe a reason-giving requirement and, and Congress will hold a hearing and maybe there's some other procedural requirement, or maybe Congress even says we'll deny funds to the agency for a, a year in rulemakings if the, if the president removes somebody. I mean, how, at what point and, and how can a judge go about deciding the point at which a president has lost adequate control, unless it's just total control? First thing let me say about this is that, yes, I believe that on this crucial point, the Constitution adopts a standard and not a rule. I think that's, I think that's true. Sometimes the Constitution does that. And when, the, and when the Constitution does that, it's necessary for everybody, including the judges, to just live with it. And there are, especially these days, recently and currently on the court, there are some rule-loving judges who just don't like that and want to find a rule in the, in the Constitution. I think that it might be that some of today's judges and justices, if they were persuaded by what, what, what I claim about the, const- the constitutional principle being, being one of adequate control, might say that nevertheless, being judges, we need to implement this with a doctrine that is substantially more rule-like. And so they might derive their current views about presidential removal power not directly from the Constitution, but as an implementing principle because, well, we're judges and we're not good at making, at making these 
um, political political judgments. Um, I I I I don't think that on a question this fundamental, it's appropriate for the court to doctrinalize it that strongly to say we're going to create this instrument on the on the basis of our judge on the basis of our judgment about about generalities because well how much do they know about generalities as Kagan and Breyer keep saying in the separate in the separation of powers cases and so I I I I think that when cases like this come up, the judges are going to have to make some kind of practical political judgment, recognizing that, you know, they may make a mistake, but they're called on for practical political judgment and to, and to ask, you know, if when, when, we, when we are overseeing the lower courts, for example, how, how much authority do we need to have over the, over the lower courts? How should they respond to our opinions? Um, think, think in those terms, and think in, and think in practical terms. I know that's only the beginning, the beginning of an answer, but any time, any time there's a constitutional standard, it's going to have to be worked out over time. Um, before we go to questions, I just want to note there was one other paper that was discussed at this roundtable in September. Uh, it was by Professor Jennifer No of Chicago and Brian Feinstein of Wharton. It couldn't be with us today, but their paper, and it's linked on our website, is titled Submerged Independent Agencies. And, and the paper focuses on how we should think about sort of the subunits within agencies that, through a variety of circumstances, act almost like independent agencies within the, the larger agency. There's another paper we linked on the website from a roundtable we did in November, which, which seems relevant. It's by Professor Daniel Crane from Michigan. He wrote a paper years ago thinking about Humphrey's executor and whether the Supreme Court really understood what it was talking about. Uh, when it wrote Humphrey's executor, what, if it really understood the FTC. After the most recent cases, we asked him to circle back to this. And so he's written a new paper called FTC Independence After CELA Law, where he really does look at the court's analysis in CELA Law and look, takes a hard look at what the FTC actually is and does today and tries to understand whether these things still hold together if they ever did. Um, but with that, we're in a room full of people who are willing to give up their Friday afternoon and March Madness to hear a bunch of talk about, about judges and presidents. So I'd love to open the floor up to any questions that people might have. And don't throw all your hands up at once, because first, we'll give Cy Prakash a chance if you'd like to offer any kind of comment along the way of what we've heard, or maybe not. Um, if you have any sort of additional reflections on, on your paper or the, uh, the calamities that you heard from your, 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 your colleague, Professor Harrison. The microphone's coming up behind you. I'll say two things. One, Professor Bombs, I did a great job. You want to say that part to the microphone so it's on the recording. Sure, sure. <laughs> I've got just two comments. Professor Bombs, I did a wonderful job presenting our paper. And the uh, second comment is Professor Harrison is a dear colleague. 99% of the time he's right. Uh, he just happens to be wrong about this. Thanks, Sorry. All right. Any other any questions? There's a question right here. And then the next one will be on this side. I got into a disagreement with a colleague not long ago about whether the president can order independent agencies to, say, submit the regulations to OMB review. And um, is that something that the president can do under the current uh, president? Or is that something you think the Constitution says that the president must be able to do and the current president is wrong? Anybody? We've got two LLC guys here. Well, actually, I'm interested in hearing, because um, I think under, under my perspective, it's, it's a somewhat easier answer. So I'm interested in hearing uh, others. Well, I have two ways of passing the buck. One, one is to say that, that Professor Nielsen had a lot to say about this in his amicus brief in Collins. Um, and so I want to... So, so, Somebody has to answer the question at some point. I, 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 will, I will then only partially pass the buck, uh, maybe while Aaron is, 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 think, is thinking about that, by, by saying, but this is going to be partly a passing of the buck. Um, by saying 
that when, but, but again, Colin, this is partly about what was going on in Collins and Collins and Sela Law and, and Arthrex. When Congress has set up a, a statutory structure that doesn't satisfy the requirement, if I'm right, doesn't satisfy the requirement of substantial presidential control over, over policymaking, well, that arrangement is unconstitutional. And the next question is the fallback severability question. That is to say, in light of the unconstitutionality of the fact that the president has no tool of control, either removal or the authority to give an order the executive, to the independent agency, like, say, participate in, 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 OMB, in OMB review, um, what, and this was, this, was the pro, this was the problem in Arthrex. It was by no means obvious what the fallback was because there were two pretty appealing solutions. One was removal power. The other was super, supervisory power. I, I, I actually think that the, the, the courts reasonably would incline towards supervisory power under those, under those circumstances, because the reason, frequently, the reason to give agencies independence, and this was very much discussed when they created the, first the Fed and then the FTC and the first, the first two Congresses under Woodrow Wilson, and we've seen a lot of discussion of it recently, was to, was to prevent partisan control. Of, of, of the agencies for which control over personnel by firing people is, is especially effective. So if you're trying to do the fallback for the, stat, for the statute and say, well, you know, if you put it in counterfactual terms, what, what would Congress have done if Congress gives independence from removal in order to inhibit partisan removal for partisan reasons to, 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 to use the agency for partisan ends, uh, like you know, partisan antitrust prosecutions that were concerned about that in creating, in creating the FTC, then probably the better fallback is, yes, the president can require that they participate in this law-like process of ensuring that the agency conducts the cost-benefit analysis that is, that is called for either by statute or by a, or by a policy matter. So that, that's going to be my sort of top-of-the-head answer. The, the key idea is it's one of these severability fallback questions. Okay. Go ahead, Aaron. So I, I can't answer the statutory question. Um, I think that would depend probably some on the specific organic statutes of agencies. So I, just don't, I just don't know. On the constitutional question, one of the arguments that John was alluding to that we made, which is hard to do because, say, the law came and then Collins came. So a lot of the low-hanging fruit had already been offered uh, by Paul Clement in, in uh, say, the law and lost. So we had to come up with some other, some other arguments. Um, one of the arguments that we thought was pretty good uh, and that you know, I wanted to be able to virtually see them if I had to get pushed is under this particular statute, the president, there's a pretty good reading of the text that the president could fire the head of the agency for policy disagreement, um, which is different from an inefficiency, neglect, or malfeasance type statute. And we said, well, wait a minute, how does that work? If the president can fire the head of the agency for not doing the president's policy uh, for insubordination, because the standard was just for cause, which that's a good meaning that that includes insubordination, then how does that prevent the president from taking care that the laws are faithfully executed if you can just say, you know what, you don't, you're not doing my policy, you're out the door. Uh, and the court says that even that, um, that would, even that would be unconstitutional, even if um, you could remove for policy disagreement. Um, so I would think under, under Collins and say the law, there would be a pretty strong constitutional argument that if the president ordered them to turn over their stuff you know, to OMB review and they didn't do it, I think there would be a pretty good argument under Collins say the law that that's unconstitutional because even if you know the statute said that they could do that, um, they could disagree on a policy. Collins says that's not that's not enough. Um, 
But, you know, again, we'll see. I, I suspect we'll have a lot more litigation um, going forward. What Aaron just said is the reason that after the combination of Collins and, say, and Arthrex, as far as I'm concerned, the glass is only half full. Well, in all these years, I've never put you on the spot while you've been in the audience, but <laughs> since you were present for the creation uh, of OIRA, and I know that you guys thought about this when the Reagan administration came in, maybe could you just recount really quickly the, the administration's original view on the president and the independent agencies and, and maybe what your current thinking is? Well, I think there, I think there was a um, OLC opinion. I mean, John, you would remember, I think, um, which said that we could... This is in, you know, in February, March, April, May, whatever, uh, of uh, 81, uh, the president could demand that uh, the independent agencies submit their rules for review to OMB just like any other agency. Now, whether that implied that, uh, you know, in order to do that, you have to be able to remove the, you know, the appointee, I'm not sure we got into just, I don't, I'm not, I can't remember how detailed the opinion was, but that was our view. Uh, the deputy attorney general at the time persuaded us that it wasn't worth to do this, wasn't to assert this power, wasn't worth the trouble we'd get from people like John Dingell, who always referred to the SEC as his agency, even though Breyer points out that um, the statute that sets up the SEC uh, doesn't actually have four-cause removal and couldn't because it was created after Myers before Humphrey. But... Um, Nevertheless, John Dingle didn't care about that minor point. Um, so it's not, not worth the trouble. And we bought that because in those days, the FCC, the FTC, big tech didn't, you know, big tech didn't exist. And the agencies weren't, those agencies weren't that important. Today, it's the bulk of the economy. So it's a very, very big deal. And it's never been completely resolved, except I will say that when President Reagan wanted to keep now, Hollywood in the, in the movie-making business, uh, he just simply gave a speech to the public speech to the FCC, and guess what? The FCC did what he asked them to do. So is it, what, what you know, what, what happens? I, I happen to think that, um, and this is going on too long, that uh, the independence of these agencies is, is not quite what it's made out to be. That they are subject to all kinds of pressures from the White House to do what they want them to do, even though there may not be an actual email transmission chain that uh, establishes that. Um, so I, I'm not sure it's really that much of a burning argument, but we're going to see a lot of fur fly, I think, in the coming years over Section 230, blah, 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 blah. What happens with, um, uh, you know, the. Um, the big tech control over access to some people say is the public square. So I think it is still a very good issue. And I, my own view is uh, the president has the authority to control the outcome, whether or not he can fire or not. Thanks, Boyden. The next over here, it's David Wagner. When I was at DOJ, the president wanted to promote an officer who already had a Senate confirmed appointment to a higher office also requiring Senate confirmation. He had become more controversial in the interim and was looking was not realistically looking forward to confirmation by the Senate to the new position. And so a non-Senate confirmable position was created for him, at least that's how I understand it. 
My question is, who is properly in charge of the boundary between positions that require Senate confirmation and Senate and positions that don't, and what are the rules and standards that govern that? You know, the Senate uh, Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee out of here a couple of weeks ago, they were saying we ought to move a lot of these Senate-confirmed positions out of Senate confirmation, either put them into just president or agency appointment or move them all the way down to civil service. Um, seems it's probably more complicated than that, but anybody? That's an anti-removal power. Isn't yeah. It? Uh, well, I mean, so the answer is there is a backdrop, which is the, the appointments clause. So we're talking about principal officers, of course. Um, there you go. Like, there's a process set out in the Constitution for that. So now let's assume we're talking about inferior officers. Um, and the answer is the Constitution very clearly gives that power to the, to the Congress. Um, they can either vest uh, the inferior officers uh, in the uh, department heads or in courts of law, uh, or leave it in the president alone without going through um, a Senate confirmation. But of course, that means that the Senate, Congress can also take that power back um, and say, no, we want these folks to go through confirmation. Because then there's the question about the delegation of powers within, like subdelegation within agencies as kind of an evasion mechanism of, of that. And again, I, as I read Arthur, it's not exactly on point. Um, but they're very careful about who has what powers, because if you give someone the wrong type of power, they become a principal officer. So surely Congress, at least I, it suggests to me that Congress could say you can't delegate this type of power, because if you did, you'd destroy the structure of the agency, um, in which case then I think it would be a question for Congress. Oh, uh, sure. We'll just wait for the microphone to make its way around. Has it been, maybe, maybe you have, and I just didn't catch it listening, but there is a practical problem with whether someone's independent or not, and that is uh, what Congress thinks it can do to push an agency around, uh, and it differs. It, it, if it's an independent agency, like if, if, if CC, uh, maybe even the Fed uh, or the SEC, uh, this naming, this, this characterization, I think does affect uh, how much Congress thinks it has leverage or, or advantage over the executive branch in determining the outcome of what these agencies decide. So I just want to make that point. There's been nothing yeah. from the panel about, about how that affects the power between the two branches. Go ahead, John. And, and that's one of the things they were talking about in 1789, was how much influence Senate involvement in removal would give over the, over the, off, over the officers. And if they had friends in the Senate, would that mean that they would, they would tell, the pres- tell the president to take a hike? I think in, in, resp- in response to following up from what, what, what Aaron just said, um, I had thought before Arthrex, I had thought that o- over the officer-employee line, but for the superior-inferior officer line, I, thought, I had thought that almost nobody needed to be a superior officer as long as there was a superior officer on top who had plenty of supervisory power, but all the stuff was done by, the, by, by inferior officers. So that's what I would have thought before Arthrex, um, that Congress could structure an agency so that there's only one superior officer, as long as that person is pretty much in charge, kind of like the president for the executive branch. After Arthrex, I think that's a harder question. Uh, last question will be right here on the aisle. It's right over here. So I have a question for John Harrison. And you mentioned in, in part of your talk today the necessary and proper clause. So I wondered uh, if you had in mind a, a particular part of the necessary and proper clause. Is, is it that first part, which refers to Congress having you know, the foregoing powers, commerce, war? Or it's the second part referring to powers vested elsewhere uh, in the government? 
because if it was the second, it sounds like it might be the first, but I, I wonder then as a fallback position for your argument, if it's the second part of the clause, uh, whether the executive power itself could be a power vested elsewhere in, in the United States government, and then Congress has something of a necessary and proper trump card such that you could concede, okay, even if Article 2 does vest the president with uh, a removal authority uh, and, and, and the executive power, Congress has the, the authority through necessary and proper clause to kind of override that particular exercise of the, ex, of the executive power. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think the relevant part of the necessary and proper power here is Congress's power to carry out its own powers. Not, it's, and it's not the third one, um, and it's not the, it's not the so-called horizontal um, necessary and proper power, which enables Congress to carry out the executive and, and, and judicial powers, because whenever Congress is doing the second one, it has, it has to respect the fact that those are separately vested powers, and Congress can help them, but can't constrain them too much. Whereas when it's doing the first thing, when Congress is structuring the government in such a way as optimally to satisfy the policy goals that Congress has for those bureaucracies that, that, that Congress creates, I think Congress there has a great deal of discretion, so I think it's that part of the necessary and proper power that's at work here. I think you'll get the last word. Let me just say real briefly before we close, and just a couple more announcements. But obviously we're limited in how many people we could invite to this event today. And it was, easy, it was an easy call for us. We invited the people who are already on our mailing list. We're so grateful to everybody who shows interest in the Gray Center's work, who comes to our conferences, who suggests topics for future events. And so... Most of all, I want to thank you all for, for supporting the Gray Center's work over its first five years and, and for your encouragement as, as Professor Mascott and I and the team continue to do more and more. So in the meantime, stay tuned uh, to your inbox where we, uh, we show up quite often, I know. Uh, but most of all, don't miss out on April 8th. We're going to have a conference here in Washington. Very proud to be co-organizing it with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I know Ed Whalen is here today. We're doing a conference on religious liberty in the administrative state. We, we did a conference on this a few years ago, and needless to say, the last few years have given ample examples of, of how important uh, the collision of these two things are. So please stay tuned for announcements on that conference. It'll be here in Washington, D.C., I believe here at the Mayflower, actually, um, in one of the upstairs conference rooms. And speaking of going upstairs, after this panel, please join us, uh, if you're, unless you're getting back for... Uh, March Madness basketball, the Iowa Hawkeyes have freed up my schedule, so I'll be upstairs. Um, But please join us upstairs on the mezzanine level for the reception. When you make your way out, the Gray Center team will, uh, will show you the way upstairs. But again, thanks to all of you for joining us, and please join me in thanking our speakers.